This is Sundays at Grace, the preaching ministry of Robinson Grace Church in Grand Haven, Michigan. I am Pastor Bill, and I'm so glad you have tuned in once again for this message. Now, what I'm going to do today in this sermon is walk us through 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. That is the passage where Paul lays out communion. What is communion? Um, Why do we take communion, and why do we not take communion? We're going to talk about it in this very message. Now, if you go to our website, myrgc.com, you can download handout notes for this message that might be helpful. Also, there's a link there. You can click on the link and you can support the ministry of Robinson Grace Church as well. Now, I think when it comes to communion, we tend to observe communion more than we actually celebrate communion. And I think there is a difference there. What we have to understand is that we don't observe communion to get right with God. We celebrate communion because we are right with God. Well, I've entitled this message, The Sacrifice of Praise. The premise being that the sacrifice of Christ is worthy of our own sacrifice of praise. In fact, as we come to the close of this message, we'll have the opportunity to define exactly what our sacrifice of praise can look like today and the rest of this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Have an awesome week. Let's get right to the message, The Sacrifice of Praise. We'll see this verse a lot this morning. Through him then, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And So there's this great movie, one of my favorite movies. How many have watched Groundhog Day? How many have watched it a hundred times? It's a great movie, right? And Groundhog Day, you know, Bill Murray's character just keeps reliving the same day over and over and over, and it's great. And so he, he, he handles the grief of the situation in different stages. The first stage, he just, you know, he just does whatever he wants. He ends up in jail, and the next day he wakes up in the same bed, and there's no consequence. So that's the first stage of the movie. Later on in the movie, he gets to this stage of where he decides, well, I'm going to improve myself while I keep reliving the same day. I'm just going to improve myself. And so he goes around and he goes around helping people out and rescuing people, you know, and fixing the old lady's tire on their car and different things. And there's this one classic scene, right, when he catches the kid out of the tree, right? And remember, he runs up and catches this kid and he says, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? He says, you little brat, you've never thanked me. I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe. And he runs on his way. And I thought about that. I thought about how much we take for granted. And, and, you know, God's like there all the time, you know, rescuing us and intervening in our life. And I wonder if God sometimes says, you never even thanked me. And uh, it's a classic line in that movie. Well, today... That takes us back to this key verse again this morning that we talk about. And this is the the title of the service today, the sacrifice of praise, the title of the message. And we're going to unpack this, and I think in a pretty powerful way as we walk through this. But there's this verse, verse 15 at least, through him then, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so the morning, the, the whole focus of this entire morning and this service is communion. And so 
the, the reality is what we want to see today is that the sacrifice of Christ should lead to our own sacrifice of praise. It really should. And so we're going to look at this today, this sermon, in two sections. The first section, we're just going to walk briefly through the entire communion account and passage as Paul shares it. And we've done this, but we're, we're going to do this again and just kind of unpack it. There are parts of this passage that can sound confusing, may easily be misunderstood, and for sure have been misrepresented. And so we're going to walk through it. Now, you know the key, I might have shared this before, what is there, there are three keys to sound biblical exegesis. You know what they are? Anybody know what they are? Number one, the three rules, number one is context, number two is context, and number three is context. You know, the truth is most uh, really bad theology, most incorrect doctrine, most misunderstandings that come out of the Bible come from really not taking the Bible in context. And we'll see that today, that to understand this whole passage, to really unpack it, you have to understand the end of the passage in accordance with what Paul said at the beginning of the passage as he's talking to the Corinthians about this issue of communion. I think that this issue of context, one of the greatest issues in the church today, I often talk about how we can moralize the Bible and we can you know, make the Bible about right and wrong and all about us and that's a huge flaw in the church today and, and, uh, but context is another one just taking scriptures totally out of context and making them say what we want them to say and I can say, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that as I read this passage this week, I understand this passage better than I ever have. I, it's funny, an interesting story. When I was at my first church in, 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 in Wisconsin, I remember some people in the church lamented, why do we always get the young guys? <laughs> One of them said. And, um, you know, and it's really interesting. I can kind of, well, I can tell you now that 25 years later, I understand a lot about the scriptures more clearly than I did 25 years ago. So I understand kind of their... Their, their comment there a little bit. And I understand this passage as well as I ever did, and it's, it's such a beautiful passage. So let's walk through it here. There are four sections we're going to look at. And speaking of context, 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 I'm going to give you the four contexts right here in this. First is the family meal. Here's what he says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, right? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Heard someone once comment that that's kind of a sarcastic line there, and it could be a sarcastic kind of approach by Paul there. But here's the reality. Note that this is not a positive passage. Paul's not patting them on the back in any way. This is, he's calling them out here, and this is kind of a negative. You can think about the strength and the weight of Paul. Paul's words here as he enters into this issue on communion. The Brian study Bible comments verse 17 this way, in the following instructions I have no praise to offer you because your gatherings do more harm than good. Can you imagine if that was a judgment on your church? It's like, you know, it would be better if you didn't get together for church at all because you, you do more damage than you do good. What, a, what an indictment on the church here. And uh, understand, <clears throat> understand this is just a, co that comment's kind of pertaining to how they handled communion. He's not saying this church should cease to exist, but he's saying in this issue, you're doing a lot of damage. And the reality is Corinth was simply a divided church that was doing more harm than good. And the whole book of Corinthians walks through several of the divisions in the church. They were a divided people and Paul calls them out for that. So the second 
uh, second section here, the second context, is this is a love feast. This is the love feast. This is the historical context. The biblical context, what's taking place, the historical context. Verses 20 and 21, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, excuse me, and, humble, and, and uh, humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so there's more strong words here. So we move from the biblical context of, of um, a family meal to the historical context of a love feast. And that's the reality. Now, understand, when we talk about a historical context, that's perfectly fine to bring the historical context into any scripture. Just know the biblical context always supersedes the historical context. But sometimes the historical context, the, the history of that day can add flavor to a package, or a passage, add, add color to a passage, add another layer of understanding to that passage. What's going on here is that they were having what was called a love feast, the agape meal. And this is what the, uh, uh, was really common back in that day. Even back in the, in, in the, uh, the, the church at Pentecost, they, they, they always had communion framed within a meal. The first communion was the Last Supper. It was framed within what? The Passover meal. It was a lamb feast. And so this is exactly how communion always was in the scripture. Much different than how we perceive it. It was always attached to a greater meal. And so what we have here is that we have this transition from a lamb feast, the, the, the Passover meal, to now a love feast. And they would get together in people's homes and they would eat together. And somewhere in that meal, they would celebrate communion and they'd rip apart the bread and they'd get a, probably a big glass of, of wine and they would celebrate communion. And today, it looks a lot different for us today. And I'm not saying what we do is wrong today. It just looks different today now the real issue here then at, at Corinth was not communion per se it was this this meal they had because some were coming and some were were gorging themselves and getting drunk and others were coming in and they didn't do it a potluck style they all came in with their own meal they ate their own meal and uh, they didn't look out for each other it was really a love feast lacking the love and so Paul just calls them out and says time out you're getting together you know do a potluck you know, or eat at home and, and just come in and just, you know, have the elements and leave the meal out of it if you can't do a love feast with love. It calls out their blatant hypocrisy. So that's the second context. Here's the third context, the main focus, and this is the spiritual context. Uh, the spiritual context. Here's what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, there's that last supper, that Passover meal. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Wow. This is the heart of communion right here, the heart of communion. We take communion for no other reason than to do what? Than to remember. We take it for no other reason than to remember. It is a symbolic meal that causes us to remember and then reflect on the mystery, the beauty, and the weight of the death of Christ. 
There is something mysterious and beautiful and really heavy about the death of Christ. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, we talk about this as the spiritual context. I framed it that way. The spiritual context is really similar to or equal to the biblical context. It's just spiritually, understand spiritually the elements here have spiritual meaning. And this, the body and blood here, it's not the literal body and blood of Christ. Understand, it's not the literal body and blood of Christ. These are just symbols. And, and I know that is, there, there is some teaching out there today, primarily in the Catholic Church, there's a term for this. And they believe that this is literally the body and blood, that, that something mystical happens to these elements and the... the the bread or the crackers and the juice or the wine literally become his body and we eat it and, and that's not the point here. This is just a symbol and we do this simply to, uh, to give a picture of the gospel and to remember the gospel and to realize there is a gospel that saves us as well as a gospel that sustains us every day of our life. And that takes us to the last section here. This is the act of worship. And I call this the traditional context. And, and here's what it says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And that, that word unworthy there just kind of means irreverent. Somebody once said it kind of means illegitimate. It's, it's like not giving it its proper significance. And, and that's exactly what they were doing. This was not an act of worship to the church at Corinth. They were coming in and having a party and they weren't even focused on Christ. And the, the point here that is that Christ is worthy of this act of worship. That when we take communion, this is something Christ is worthy of. That we would take communion and we would, we would understand the significance of what these elements mean and everything we talk about today would just kind of um, open up for us. Communion, an act of worship. Um, the reality is when you think about it is that communion can become trite and become traditional. It can just become a religious exercise you go through and you lose sight of what you're doing. It's just like, and I know there are churches that do communion every week and I'm not going to say that's wrong. And some do it every month and some every two months and everybody's got their own, how much, it's not how often you do it, it's when you do it, make sure you're not just going through the motions. Make sure it's not just some religious exercise, that you're not just repeating something by rote, you know, and, and, you, and you don't really get the significance of what you're doing and how significant it is. I think that's really important. Don't let it lose its, its element of worship. He goes on in verses 28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And again, I think this is one of the parts traditionally growing up, I, we all have a picture of what it means when communion comes and we stop and we examine ourselves and we make sure, hey, am I worthy to take communion? And that is so out of the context of the whole point here. And when he tells them to examine themselves, he's hearkening back again to the first part of this passage and what's going on here. And, and the point really of examining yourself is to make sure your focus is where it's supposed to be. Let me give you today's big idea. Take this home and understand this when we take communion. This is so beautiful. Um, oh, and I, it must come up in a minute here, but... Look at this, examine yourself. Does not mean to put the focus on us and our sin. 
In context, it simply means to make sure that our focus is on the main focus. We do this in remembrance of Christ. Not in remembrance of me, not in how, how badly I have missed the mark, not in my sin and my shortcomings. Now, I will say this. Probably you like me. When we take communion and when we are faced with the magnitude of the cross, the sin in my life does get exposed. I am made aware of that. And my sin magnifies the cross all the more. And uh, so it's not like we, we don't, aren't aware of our sin and the sin that we're wrestling with and the temptation that we succumb to. It is very re- evident when we take communion. The point is, communion is not the time to examine, am I worthy to take communion today? That is the wrong mindset. The focus is to be squarely on Christ. Here's our big idea. We don't, deserve, we don't observe communion to get right with God. We, de- we celebrate communion because we are right with God. We don't observe communion to get right with God. We celebrate communion because we are right with God. He has made us right. He has made us worthy. And so we can offer him this act of worship, of, 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 of communion and recognizing his sacrifice. In fact, I would argue, you know, that that whole thing that sometimes we examine ourselves and so we think, well, maybe today I shouldn't take communion because I got the sin and I'm not worthy to take it today and so we just kind of let the elements pass us by. I would say the exact opposite. Take the elements and proclaim the power of his death, the power of his grace, the fow- power of his mercy and his right. Proclaim that over your life. Proclaim that over your struggle. Proclaim that over your temptation and recognize that he is greater than any of the shortcomings in your life. We don't observe communion to get right with God. We celebrate communion because we are right with God. Now, the reason we know that the, the, the context here is, is not examining your body and making sure you're right to take communion, it's because discerning the body here is talking about the body of Christ. He's saying, you know, when you take communion, discern the body. You're taking this as a body. You're not taking this individually. You're not having an individual meal. This is a love feast. This is a church gathering. Discern the entire body that you're a part of and discern the body. It's kind of a play on words, I almost think. Discern the body of Christ, the body, the elements you're taking, but discern also the body of Christ. Remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and addressing a specific issue in the church. So, in the end, communion is not about my behavior, but about the behavior of Christ. And again, we don't observe communion to get right with God. We celebrate it because we are right with God. Finally, he goes on here, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, what's this about? People getting sick and people dying. What's going on here? Yeah, people were coming in and they were stuffing themselves and they were gorging themselves. And it's almost like the attitude was the, the drunker I get and the, the fuller I am, the more spiritual I am. My meal's more spiritual than yours. And the reality is God wasn't killing them. God wasn't making them sick. Their unhealthy lifestyle was. But as the English Standard Version says, I like the way they use the word disciplined. We are disciplined. And that, it was kind of a form of God's discipline on this church. He was allowing this to happen, to say, hey, wake up. Wake up to how you're handling and approaching the Lord's table and you're approaching communion and how you're making a mockery of it. 
Finally, he wraps this up. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give you directions when I come. And just note how the very end of this takes it back to the very beginning of, the, of the verse 17 and ties this whole context together of how they are supposed to approach communion. And so that is exactly what Paul is speaking into. Just know that in communion, the main focus is to be on Christ and his body. Christ and his church. And that's the main focus of communion. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, so with that in mind, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the rest of the message and we're going to look at communion as an act of worship. As an act of worship, knowing that his sacrifice is worthy of our worship. I want us to consider for a few moments this idea that communion is indeed an act of worship. More than a religious experience or a traditional exercise, communion should be an act of worship. More than simply going through the motions, communion should reflect our deep devotion to Christ. So let's consider then exactly how we can worship God through the act of communion. And we have four areas we're going to note, note here. Okay, first is the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of praise, knowing that his sacrifice is worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. We just finished studying the book of Hebrews. Uh, thank you, Wayne, for leading us through a great study in Hebrews, 13 chapters. And the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ and how his, his sacrifice was, was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His sacrifice trumped every sacrifice and ended the whole sacrificial system and they stopped sacrificing animals when Christ was crucified. Well, he ends the book of Hebrews in chapter 13 with this verse. We read it. Through him then, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so basically, do you understand that his sacrifice is worthy of our sacrifice? All of those, the, the, the supremacy of the sacrifice of Christ in Hebrews, he wraps it up and says, now you offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What's interesting here in, in the context of, of um, uh, of communion there's no direct command in communion for us to give thanks did you notice that nowhere in there does it tell us to give thanks it tells us to remember though and can i just say that when we remember what christ did for us what's the what's the reasonable response to say thanks oh thank you lord thank you for what you did for us on the cross this idea of praise and thanksgiving you know when you when you think about praise and thanksgiving the word praise actually uh, contains that idea it's it's the idea of giving thanks in our worship and sometimes there are different greek words in the psalms that are translated the, the greek word is translated praise here and thanksgiving here there's a couple words like that here's one example hebrews 13 uh oh that's the end of the, the sorry about that I didn't read the end of Hebrews 13 a minute ago. His sacrifice, though, is worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. So look here. I think I've got a couple examples. Psalms 116. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. And the Greek word for thanksgiving there is translated over here in Psalms 100. 
these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in, the, in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And so that's the same Greek word. One time it's translated praise, one time it's translated thanksgiving. There's this simple idea there of praise and thanksgiving. Now, here's what, uh, just think about this idea. When we, we, we talk about, we're, we're told to remember and I think that's key, what he tells us to remember. You know why? Because it is so easy to forget, is it not? Is it, isn't, isn't that so easy to forget and take for granted some of the things that should be so special and so precious to us? And we need to stop. We need to remember, reflect on, and give thanks for the spiritual blessings we may lose sight of. In particular, we need to give thanks for the gospel that we so take for granted. We need to give thanks for the gospel, the gospel that doesn't just save, save us, but sustains us. We need the gospel even after we're saved because it sustains us. So look here at some things we could take for granted. Look at this. Here's a bunch of legal terms. Most of these are legal terms related to the gospel. Giving thanks for our salvation and the substitution and the propitiation and the justification and the forgiveness and the redemption and the reconciliation and the regeneration and the sanctification and the glorification and the faith. And the, the reality is, it is so easy to take these things for granted. Now, I left one blank up there. There is a very common legal term tied to our salvation we should be thankful for anybody want to guess what that legal term is i'm missing and there may be two or three other words out there but there's one common one we kind of sang about it this morning anybody know what it might be it ends in t-i-o-n how about our adoption wayne knew it he's shaking his head yeah speak up but you see how easy it is to take something like our adoption for granted and not even, but we need to say, yeah. And communion is a great place to consider our adoption because what we celebrate communion, what? As a family, we're adopted into God's family. He adopted us. We have a, a new family and his blood pours through our veins as we sang this morning. What, what, you want something to be thankful for, be thankful for your Adoption. I want you to see something. We're going to see it repeatedly throughout the rest of the service here. But I want you to think about something. So the passage here does not tell us to give thanks in communion, right? But we should reasonably do that. Who does give thanks in communion? Who gave thanks in the communion passage? It's in there. Say it. Say it. You can, you can shout it out. Okay. If it's afraid to give the answer, it's like, it's a simple answer. Right. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is in the upper room. Within 24 hours, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And Jesus is giving thanks. I mean, how crazy is that? And what's he giving thanks for? Oh, for my broken body. I think this is so amazing. Oh, we need to give thanks for our adoption. But, but here, back to this verse, through him, through Christ, watch this, through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do you understand what's going on here? See, I want you to catch what this verse is saying about our sacrifice of praise. We offer our sacrifice to God, how? 
through Christ. Because he became the sacrifice, he is now the avenue through which we can offer acceptable sacrifices to God. Remember this verse? Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we can do this, why? Because Christ has made us holy and acceptable to God. And so we go back to this whole thing that Jesus is the one, shocker, Jesus is the one saying, giving thanks for his broken body on the tree. And here's the reality, because Jesus offered up a sacrifice of thanksgiving, so can we. When I offer up a a sacrifice of thanksgiving, it's just because he did first. He was the first to give thanks. And so because he gave thanks, so can we. Just think about this act of worship this morning. Let's look at the, the second part of this act of worship, the humbling of self. The humbling of self. Think about this, his sacrifice is worthy of our humility and our trust. And there's really no greater response to the gospel than humility, right? In fact, what does the gospel require of us? Nothing. It requires nothing except our humility. To, To wave the white flag and say, I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself. I've always said the gospel is extremely simple. It's just not easy because it's so hard to humble ourselves before a holy God. I was saying something similar last week, but it's crazy how someone's life can be so spinning out of control, so full of hopelessness and despair. And God comes along and says, you know what? Uh, He tells you that he can put your life back together. He can clean you up, right your wrongs, forgive your sins, silence your shame, give you a new heart, mend your brokenness, heal your hurt, and bring purpose to your scars. I can do all that for you. And they're like, they won't even give him a chance. They won't even give him a second thought. They won't even see if he can do what he says he can do because they can't humble themselves. And they'll try all kinds of uh, other things, all kinds of relationships and substances and anything in the world they can, but they just won't humble themselves and try Christ. His sacrifice is worthy of our humility and trust. Now this, the broken bread here, which symbolizes his broken body, represents his humble death. The broken bread, which symbolizes his broken body, represents his humble death. I just want you to think about that for a moment this morning. Again, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I want you to watch this, okay? So we said that Jesus was the one who gave thanks first, right, for the communion, for for the cross, and for... He gave, well, look at this. Think about the humility that the gospel requires, right? The gospel requires humility. Who was the first one to respond to the gospel with humility? Well, Christ was. The gospel required the humility of Jesus first before you and I ever humbled ourselves. The creator of this world became the redeemer of this world, humbled himself, came to earth, was mocked and humiliated and hung on a cross to die. And so we go back to Hebrews, again, 13, 15, and we go back to that same thing because Jesus offered up a sacrifice of humility, so can we. Because he was humble first, we can be humble. If he can be humble, if the God of the universe can humble themselves to the redemptive plan on the cross, why can't we? Why can't we? 
The reality is his humility is worthy of our humility. And think about this one. Think about, we, we think about how his, his sacrifice is worthy of our humility and our trust. And just think back to that last series we did. We talked about the faith of Christ, that Jesus is the one who had the faith. It's not our faith, it's his faith. He had faith in the redemptive plan. He believed that if he went into the grave, that the Father wouldn't leave him there, that the grave couldn't hold him, that he could actually give his life to all of us who would receive it. He had the faith to believe that. And so just think about that because Jesus offered up a sacrifice of trust, so can we. He trusted in the redemptive plan long before we ever did. And we only, we only put our faith and trust in it because he gives us the faith to do that. He had the faith. I just believe, well, I believe that he went to the cross and died because he believed. He, that's why he died. Why else did Jesus die? Because he believed if he went to the cross, all that would happen. And I might not believe, have that much faith, but I believe that Jesus believed it. <laughs> I mean, he died. Oh, how beautiful it is. And here today we have Christ now who went to the cross and he didn't just save us, but he relates with us. He identifies with us. He knows what it feels like to live our life, battle our temptations, face our circumstances. He has taken on our fear, our sin, our guilt, our shame, our hurt, our wrong injustices. We talked in the last series about what are those things we hold on to we need to let go of. And you know what? All of those things we need to let go of, Jesus took all of those things in his body on the tree. And he knows what it feels like to hang on to those things. And he's like, let go of them and let me work in your life. So it's true that I have been crucified with Christ, but Jesus was also broken just like me. So the act of worship, we have the sacrifice of praise, the humbling of self, and then we have this third one, the celebration of life. The celebration of life and his sacrifice is worthy of our joy and our righteousness. Now you might say, where do we find life in the communion account? Well, there's actually two places you can find life in the communion account. First, the juice, which represents his, uh, which symbolizes his blood, represents his saving life. The Lord Jesus, on the night he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood is going to bring about something new. We know this from Leviticus chapter 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. And as an animal was sacrificed, their blood or their life poured out of them and they died. This is what happened with Jesus. His blood or his life poured out of him and he died. Yet Jesus came back from the grave. And when he did, he gives, uh, he, um, excuse me, <clears throat> he came back from the grave and what he did was he gives all who put their faith and trust in him a spiritual blood transfusion. And we who are spiritually dead become spiritually alive. He gives us his life. Think blood. And we are new creations in Christ with new creation hearts. And his sacrifice then is worthy of our joy and our righteousness. Now think about this. I wonder, when, when it comes to communion, do you observe communion or do you celebrate communion? Do you observe communion or do you uh, celebrate communion? I don't think we should just observe communion like 
Columbus Day or Martin Luther King Day or Memorial Day. I think we should celebrate communion like Christmas or like Easter. That's the reality. In fact, communion kind of always was this idea of a celebration. You think back here. Here's where communion, it has its roots back here. Um, and this is not the right, uh, Psalms 15.2. It's not Psalms, it's Exodus actually, 15.2. And this is when the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea and they've left Pharaoh and they're free. And, and Moses gives this declaration of praise. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And this is why they celebrated the Passover meal. The first communion meal was not a morbid Time in that upper room, we probably don't get that. We think, well, Jesus is going to the cross and it's dark and it's morbid and none of them knew that. They're celebrating the Passover, this lamb feast and it's a, it's a time of celebration and praise and gratitude and it's more of an upbeat time. Jesus kind of was the downer at the meal. He's talking about some pretty depressing things. And you go from the lamb feast to the love feast there in Acts and on in, in through Paul's ministry. And there is a shift here in this idea. But um, still, do, you, do we observe communion or do we celebrate communion? His sacrifice is worthy of our joy. His sacrifice is worthy of our joy. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and let me just say it to you again that if Jesus can offer up a sacrifice of joy so can we and I don't care what our circumstance looks like I don't care what we're going through if he can offer up a sacrifice of joy so can we his sacrifice is worthy of our joy and then how about this one one more his sacrifice is worthy of our righteousness as well 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How about that? The one who knew no sin. The one who knew no sin. He was pure and spotless. The pure and spotless Lamb of God. No one else could go to the cross. No one else was pure and spotless and perfect. Christ was. He knew no sin. And he went to the cross and took on our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. He, made, he, he offered up a, a, a sacrifice of righteousness, his righteous, pure, spotless body to take on our sins. And so again, if he can offer up a sacrifice of righteousness, so can we. So can we. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In the face of tremendous injustice, incredible pain, and unrivaled temptation, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice of righteousness and enables us to do the very same. Communion, is it a celebration or an observation? And by celebration, I don't mean it becomes a party atmosphere because that's exactly what Paul called the Corinthians out for. I just mean in our attitude, are we celebrating? Or are we just observing? 
Is this an act of worship, a celebration? Is this just an observation of a religious exercise that has lost its meaning? Finally, one last act of worship briefly here. It's the expectations of tomorrow because his sacrifice is worthy of our hope. Communion ultimately should leave us hopeful. Talk about a celebration. Communion is a bold proclamation that Christ didn't just die. He rose again. This is the other area where you see life in the, commun- in the communion account. You think it's all about his death. It's not. It's about his life. Because look at what it says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back, which means what? He's alive. He came out of that grave. He's alive And he's returning. And we have incredible hope because of that. His sacrifice is worthy of our hope. Communion reminds us of the hope we have. It's not just that we're looking backward to remember. We're looking forward in anticipation, anticipating that glorious day. I love Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in or to us. There is a glory. Bottom line, there is a glory. The hardships of this world is no comparison to the glory of heaven. Whatever we go through, there there is no comparison to the glory of heaven and Jesus knew this and Jesus faced the greatest hardship this world could ever throw at him. And he did so because he knew of the hope and the glory that awaited him in heaven. If it's true for Jesus, it's true for you and me. The harshness and cruelty of the cross is no match for the glory of heaven. There is a glory awaiting us that we have no idea what that even looks like. His sacrifice is worthy of our praise and thanksgiving, of our humility and trust, of our joy and righteousness, and ultimately of our hope. Let me just leave you here before we go into communion with this. Just think about this reality that we were created for the glory of God. We were created to bring glory to God with our life. And when you think about the struggles you go through in this world, the injustices you face, the wrongs that you encounter, the questions you have, when when you think about the adversity that life throws at you sometimes, just understand something. That when you face that circumstance, that adversity, whatever it is, that situation, when you face that and you face it and offer up a sacrifice of praise, you, you, you take that whole thing and, and, and you, find, you find fulfillment and you find purpose and you find meaning. That's how you find purpose and meaning and fulfillment and direction. And that's in your struggles, that's how you find that because you offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And, and just let me just show you one other thing about that verse we kept reading today, right? In fact, let me, um, let me just jump back here one more time. And read the verse. Through him then, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now think about this. So sometimes, sometimes to offer up the sacrifice of praise, whatever it is, it goes from my head to my heart to my mouth. And I'm just in the car alone and I just verbalize it. Lord, today... I am going to offer you a sacrifice of hope. I am going to have hope today. I don't care what's going on. I'm going to have, and we verbalize it. We say it out loud. 
Or today I'm going to offer up a sacrifice, Lord, of righteousness. And I'm facing temptation or I'm facing some struggle. And I'm just going to do the right thing, the righteous thing. And, and we just verbalize it from our head to our heart to our mouth. And then did you look at verse 16? Because here's the other thing. We didn't even get into this. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And sometimes that sacrifice of praise goes from our head to our heart to our hands. And we reach out and we touch someone else's life and we do something good to be a blessing to others as we offer a sacrifice of praise. And in the middle, midst of our hardship and our struggles, that's the best way to find purpose and meaning and hope. It really is. It really, really is. I'm going to call the men down. I'm going to call the men down.